0: Great to see you here today, and uh, man, if you're in the house or you're online, we are so glad that you are worshiping with us uh, today. So, uh, 21, 21, 21 weeks since the coronavirus uh, stomped on our sandcastle, okay? 21 weeks uh, when everything, the world has kind of knew it, came to a standstill. Can't believe it's been that long, right? And we're still kind of working our way out of it we're still wearing masks we're trying to figure out what school's going to do all that type of thing and uh, i remember back in april uh the president uh, in a tweet made a comment that the the virus was what he called the invisible enemy do you remember that he called it the invisible enemy he's not the only one that was attributing kind of sinister motives to The coronavirus, um, Chris Cuomo from CNN, uh, who was recovering from COVID, uh, actually made this statement. He said, quote, the virus wants us to lay down. The virus wants us to lay down. And then there were many other people that kind of jumped on that bandwagon and called the virus many things. Like, For example, some said it was tricky or sneaky or uh, vicious or cruel or merciless. So this idea that this virus has you know, ill intent and is working its way to try to destroy and to kill. Uh, and when I heard that phrase, the invisible enemy, I thought in my mind, we actually do have a visible enemy. We actually do have an enemy that we can't see with our eyes, but is very real. And you know what, this enemy is smart and is tough, and is merciless, and is cruel, and really does seek to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. And uh, so we're going to talk about that today, because we're in this series on the family, and last week we talked about God's plan for making home work. How does, how was home designed to work? How was your family designed to work? But today we're going to talk about why families don't work, what is it that causes families to spin out of control or to fall apart? And we're gonna look at that in Genesis chapter three. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open that thing up. Genesis chapter three, we, that's what we do every week. We just get right into God's word, all right? Genesis chapter three is where we're gonna to be uh, today, all right? And while you're turning there, let me just remind you that, uh, that God created uh, man and woman. He created Adam and Eve. And he created them uh, in the image of God. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that they were created the image of God. What does that mean? That means that God created them in a special way to reflect his glory and his image on the earth. Uh, The image of God, something only given to human beings, not given to any other creation. And by the way, Genesis 127, just a little side caveat, is the place where where the Christian worldview that all men are created equal, that men and women are created equal, that, that no matter your ethnicity or your background or your socioeconomic economic status, that you are equal in the eyes of God. That's where we find that in Genesis 127. All people created equal, all nations growing from one man, see, and... Uh, and that's why we are strongly pro-life because we believe that every person every child is created in the image of god that's why we stand to get euthanasia because we believe that every person every life matters to god so this is where it starts the equality in dignity equality in design equality in value and quality in personhood all of that happens in genesis 1. so god takes this couple that is uniquely designed to be together uh, according to his plan, and he puts them in the perfect place, right? The Garden of Eden, all right? This great place, man, it would be the place you want to hang out, all right? It is a perfect place. Everything is provided for them. I mean, everything is as it should be. And there they are in the perfect place. and, And even in that perfect environment, trouble comes slithering in, okay? So let's take a look at it. Genesis 3, uh, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for attaining wisdom. And so she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave it some to her husband who was with her and he ate it then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves now stop right there you know this first family is put in this perfect environment right the garden of eden and in that god gives tremendous freedom and boundaries God says, listen, you can eat of anything you want. I mean, just enjoy this playground that I've created for you. It's a perfect environment. You were created for this. This is your purpose to take care of all this stuff. But there's just some boundaries here. You can't eat of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you eat it, you're gonna die. It's just like a good parent that says, "Listen, you can play in the backyard. You can play in the side yard. You can play in the front yard. You can have a blast. You can do all. You can play inside, outside. You can do whatever you want, but don't play in the street because if you play in the street, you're going to die. All right? It's going to hurt you, so don't do that. God creates some boundaries here, and it's in the in the in the in that, in that space of boundary that the enemy comes in to attack. Listen, I, w- I want you to know that um, I truly believe." that every family crisis is at the core a spiritual crisis. Every marriage crisis is at the core a spiritual crisis. You say, Craig, why do you say that? Well, because look at, look at who is causing the trouble here. Look at verse one, it is the serpent. Circle that word, the serpent, right? Now, who is this? Who is the serpent here? Well, uh, if I had a lot of time, I could go back and I could take it all these different places in the Bible to explain who that is. But for the sake of time, just write Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 in the margin next to Genesis 1. Revelation 12, verse 7. And it explains to us who the serpent is. And it's describing this cosmic battle, this spiritual battle that's happening in heaven. And this is what we read. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels also fought, but they could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So that great dragon was thrown out. Now look at this. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the one who deceives the whole world. Get that? He said there's this massive battle in heaven predating Genesis 3, predating creation. There's this massive battle in heaven and Satan fighting against Michael and the archangels. And and in this cosmic battle, Satan is thrown down. Now listen, that is the same thing that's happening. That same battle continues on the earth and we feel it. We're in the midst of it. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. You get that? He's saying your struggle is not with your wife. It's not with your husband. It's not with your kids. It's not with their friends. It's not with that person at work. Your struggle is not there. Your struggle is a spiritual struggle. A spiritual battle being waged. And so when I say that every marriage problem is at the core a spiritual problem, what I'm saying is that every marriage crisis, every family crisis, is an attack from the enemy to destroy your family. You're dealing with a spiritual battle. You're dealing with a cosmic struggle. And that's why, what we're facing right now. And that's exactly what we're seeing our our first parents, Adam and Eve, are dealing with. And now let me tell you, uh, in this passage, I want to show you how the enemy attacks. Now listen, he's not that creative. I mean, he just says the same thing over and over and over. And it's very effective. So I want to show you in this passage how the enemy will attack and does attack you and your family. You've got a piece of paper, got a pen out. You want to write this down, all right? Here's the first thing. Write this down. Attack number one is that he gets you to question what God has spoken he will get you to question what God has spoken. Again, look at verse one. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord has made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? Did God say, you can't? look at all this wonderful stuff. God said you can't eat any of this? He was asking a simple question. This is not a frontal attack. This is a much more subtle approach. All right, I'm just gonna create doubt. I'm going to create some question. You know why he does that? Because he knows that if he can get you to doubt what God has said, then ultimately he he can get you to reject what God has said. Well, I don't believe that. That's so outdated. Why would God do that? That's not true. And then if he can reject, if you can reject what God has said, then ultimately you will reject God. Himself. This is how it happens. Well, is that really what the Bible says? Well, you don't believe that, do you? Well, surely you don't believe that. That's so outdated. That's so okay. uh, you know archaic. That's so this and so that. We need to reject it altogether. And then once we've rejected that, then we can then reject God Himself, and I can take His place as the one who calls the shots. See, that is the pattern. And. Uh, That is how the devil works when, you know, that's how sin works, right? Sin doesn't just happen. Sin happens when we quietly conclude that God cannot be trusted. That God's word cannot be trusted. That God's promises cannot be trusted. That God will not do what he claims that he's promised to do. Now listen, this happens on a large scale. This happens right now in your family. Every time they open up their phone, every time they look at their newsfeed, every time they get on their social media, uh, there's attack that God's word is not true, that God's word is uh, archaic, that God's word is outdated, that God's word should be rejected, that God's word is bad. This is why they're burning Bibles in Portland. Why are they burning the Bible? Because it's a spiritual attack against the foundation of God's truth. And so that there's an attack there and sometimes it's on large scale with political action groups and sometimes it's with media and sometimes it's, it's on college campuses that decredit, discredit or seek to discredit God's word. Uh, sometimes in liberal seminaries do the very same thing if you can imagine. In fact, I was just thinking about Lawrence Krauss who is a, a former physics professor at University of Arizona. And a a, a prominent atheist speaking to an atheist group. This is what he said. Change is always a generation away. So if we can plant the seeds of doubt in our children, religion will go away in a generation. Or at least largely go away. And that's what I think we have an obligation to do. You hear what he's saying? We have an obligation to create doubt because we know if we can doubt what God says and we'll, we will reject God's word and ultimately re- re- reject God and lose a generation. Sometimes it comes in these large influences in our lives. Sometimes it comes in our own inner thoughts. Sometimes we hear the question "Did God really say even in our own voice. Did God really say that he was gonna provide for you? Because the way I see it, you're still struggling. Did God really say that uh, your marriage was gonna be uh, wonderful and uh, last I checked, it's not so good. So I don't know if you can trust God. God really say that, uh, man, the the effective prayers of a righteous man uh, availeth much. Well, last I checked, you've been praying a lot and nothing's happened. Does God, is God really trust? Is is His word really true? These questions, these doubts began to discredit God, and, and this is what, he's coming to Eve. He's going, God really say that? And, and you know, I give her credit. You know, she does respond to him. She goes, no, 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 God didn't say that I can't eat from any tree. She said, we just can't eat from that tree. And she said, but the problem is she kind of adds a little something to it. Look at, look at verse 3. She said, this she quoting God now, actually misquoting God. You must not eat it or touch it or you will surely die. See, she kind of adds this little piece. God never said you couldn't touch it. He just said you couldn't eat it. So somehow it's a little fuzzy for her, and this is what I really want you to understand, is that that when you get these doubts of discrediting God, can God really be trusted? Uh, If you don't know God's word, you are just set up for failure. This is why we teach the Bible, why I'm not just giving you five tips to a better life. All right? Because you need to know what this book says. So when that question comes, when that time comes, you know what it says. If you do not, then you're participating in your own deception. And that's why in, in, Ephesians, in, in Hebrews four, uh, the word of God is called a sword. It is your offensive weapon. This is why when Jesus was tempted by Jesus that he quoted over and over, it is written. He knew the truth and Satan couldn't take it. And so he left. And that same thing will happen to you. If you know the truth, you can stand with your sword in your hand. What Satan wants you to do is to surrender it. He wants you to lay your sword down and just take his word for it. And that is always the first step to sin coming in your life is to doubt and to question. Did God really say, is God really good? Can I really trust what God has spoken to me in his word? Subtle, but incredibly deadly. Number two, write this down, second number attack is once he's got you to question that, then he moves to the next thing, and that is to promise that your happiness is outside of God's plan. You know, your happiness is really outside of what God wants, not inside of what God wants. Look at verse four. He said, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil you know, let me just go ahead and make this really crystal clear, and this is a great spot for an amen. Uh, I'm just prepping you, prepping you for this, all right? Uh, Satan is a liar. I, you did so much better than the first service, I'm just telling you. Satan is a liar, folks, all right? That, that, that thought in your mind, the, those words, those flaming dark, th- that is not true. When Jesus talked about uh, Satan in John 8, he said, there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks his own nature. In fact, some verses say his own native tongue when he's lying. He says that, that he, is, uh, he is a liar and the father of lies, the source head of all lies come from him. And so he is lying to her here. He's lying to her in a lot of different ways. He lies and says, there's no penalty. Oh, you're not going to die. You're going to be just fine. You know, don't worry about that. God said, oh, this is going to kill me. Nah, it's not going to kill you. He's not going to hurt you. You're going to be fine. Hey, don't worry about the consequences of what you're going to do. Don't worry about that. There's no consequences here. And there's certainly no standing before God giving an account of your life. Forget all that. Just live your life. Do what you want to do. You want to eat it, eat it. You want that person? Then have it. If you want to go do that, go do that. Just just be happy. I just want you to be happy. Some of the worst parenting quotes, you know, list on the top 10 worst parenting quotes. I just want you to be happy. Just whatever you want. This is exactly what he's saying here, y'all. No, 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 there's no penalty for that. And by the way, he'll point out people that have actually done the bad thing and say, look, their life didn't fall apart. In fact, they're so happy. Look how happy she is. Look how happy he is. Never seen her look better. You should do the same thing. He will minimize the warning. Listen, God warned you because he loves you. It's the parent that says, don't do that. That is, that is gonna mess you up. Satan lies to you because he hates you. That's just a fact. So he's lying to her about the penalty, and then he lies to her about where happiness lies. He goes, don't you know that when you do this thing, that you're gonna, you're gonna get this thing, the knowledge of good and evil, that God's restricting from you. He's, he's holding back from you. That's what makes him unique, and, and, and God's holding out on you, and if you really get that, then you're really gonna be happy. And this whole idea that happiness is outside of God's plan, if I could just get away from God's plan, then I could live my life and be free to be happy, is a lie from hell. It is a lie from hell, and it is a lie that every generation believes with devastating, devastating consequences. You fill in the blanks. But folks, we're living this out right now. And your family is living this out Right now, God says, hey, you need to be sexually pure and, and guard yourself for your husband and for your wife. And the enemy goes, forget that, man. In fact, that's actually bad. You need to be more sexually, uh, have more sexual experiences. That's where healthy is, see? Just t- t- turning it upside down. God says, um, you know, you need, you need this relationship you're in is, is toxic. It's not good. Uh, Satan goes, I actually, you love whoever you want to love. Who's to tell you that? It's all love anyway. Do, do, be with who you want to be with. God says you need Christian community. You really need to have friends that love God and love the Word that can encourage you. Saying goes, you know, you got plenty of friends that you party with at, at work and plenty of friends you party with at school. You don't need Christian friends. Why do you need that? They're just going to drag you down. They're just going to make you feel guilty. You know, you don't need those people. God says you need to obey your parents. And honor them, Satan goes, forget them. They're just trying to control you. You live your own life. God says, you you have sin in your life and you need a savior. And Satan says, you're not bad. You're no sinner. You're a good person. And look at all the good things you do and you will be just fine. This is, Satan always points to something outside of God's plan. And then he makes God's plan look evil. This is what he does. He makes right look wrong and wrong look right. And he is a master at that. A master. So he gets you to doubt. Well, is God really true? God, can I really trust what God's word says? Then he says outright, no, this is not going to happen. Actually, what God wants is bad. And your happiness is somewhere else. And then that sets you up for this last thing. And this is the last attack, that he makes sin attractive and accessible. Look at what it says in verse six. He says, this woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was so it was desirable for attaining wisdom. Just circle the words saw and delightful and desirable. He's always gonna make it look, I mean, this, this whatever, it was. maybe it was an apple, maybe it was a peach. I don't, I don't know what the thing was, right? but it looked good and it felt good in her hand and it smelled good and it was attractive and she wanted it. And God will always make sin look attractive and desirable. She only saw the good qualities in this thing that God said would kill her. Well, he makes me laugh, you know. And he makes me feel good about myself and yeah surely this is a god's plan oh she she you know she really meets my needs and she she uh she brings me you know laughter and joy and so surely this must be god's plan or you know this thing you know makes me feel a certain way or then you know this little thing that i'm doing at work don't worry about that because really that's that's gonna I, you got to do business this way in order to really get ahead but but this is this is what i want and so it always looks attractive but but it leads you to a place you don't want to go. Ask every any alcoholic how attractive that drink looks in the swirling in the glass. Ask any junkie how 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 attractive that 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 needle looks, knowing what is the rush that's going to come from. I ask any sex addict how, how desirable that person is, that thing is, or what they're viewing, one click away, one, one word away. It's so accessible, it's so here, it's so now. How much of that is just right on your phone? So attractive, so accessible. And Satan will drop it right in front of you. But it's deadly, deadly. Deadly. I had a friend of mine that just came back from uh, fly fishing in Colorado for a couple weeks, and he said, man, I had the best time. He said, man, I was out there, and we was in the stream, and the stream was going, it was gorgeous and beautiful, and he said, I was throwing my, my line out, and man, I wasn't hitting anything. I mean, it just was not hitting anything I threw out there. And then he said, I noticed this one bug dropping down on the water, so he said, I grabbed it. And I looked at him. This bug had a kind of a longer body with some smaller wings on the side. So he said, I got in my box. And sure enough, I found a a fly that looked very similar to that one. So he said, I put that on my line. And he said, I cast it out there. And he said, I could look through. I could see the fish with my polarized glasses. And I could see when I would drop it out that that fish is starting to notice it. All right, the fish is starting to look at it. And then he said, I pull it back. And then I throw it back again. And that fish is now starting to get agitated and see it. And he said, then I threw it back a third time. And he said, I dropped it right where I knew that fish was going to be. And he said, man, when that fly hit the water, this fish came up and snagged that thing. And he said, right then I knew. I set the hook. See, that fish is thinking, man, that's going to be a good looking fly, right? That fly looks good. That fly is gonna be yummy. That fly is lunch. I want it, but he has no idea that when he hits that fly that the hook is set and he's gonna be dragged, he's gonna lose control, and he's not gonna be able to go where he wants to go, and it's gonna bring him to a point that is gonna take his life. If he had known there was a hook there, he would have never bit. Listen, when Eve bit, there was a hook. That sin hook was lodged. When Adam bit, the sin hook was lodged. And listen, all the suffering and all the hurt and all the chaos that has run through our bloodstream because we have the sin of Adam in us. That fallen nature. That sinful proclivity. Listen. Satan will always make sin attractive and he will always make it accessible. But it always comes with a high price. Listen, I, I believe that every family crisis is at the core of spiritual crisis. Every marriage crisis is at the core of spiritual crisis. There's, there's a battle. There's an enemy. And this is how he operates. Parents, warn your children. Warn yourself. To, to not uh, minimize God's word because he wants you to doubt it. Uh, to hold on to God's word. Best defense against doubt is to know the truth. And and then listen, to not ever think that somehow outside of God's will is, is where happiness is, but to actually see that Satan loves to twist things and turn them upside down to make what is wrong look right, and what is right look wrong. And then to be aware and to guard yourself when he drops that wonderful opportunity right in your lap. So accessible, so attractive, yet we know there's a hook inside of it. Well, where does all this lead? Look at verse seven, look at verse seven. This is where it leads. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for them. I want you to write this in the margin of your Bible, okay? We believe in writing in our Bibles, amen? Hey, I wanna give you a simple equation. It's very simple but it's very true. Here it is. Sin, equal sign, separation. That's what sin does. Sin separates. And you see immediately that they, they, they fi- feel separation, right? And first off, they're separated from God, right? That they, they immediately are recoil and they realize shame and they realize guilt and they, they realize that something is wrong. They never felt this feeling before. They never felt separated from God before. And now all of a sudden they're hiding. They're creating fig leaves. They're trying to cover themselves. And here comes God. If you continue to read, God comes with the cool of the day and calls out for Adam. Listen, he's not calling out to Adam because he doesn't know where Adam is. He's calling out to Adam because he's giving Adam an opportunity to confess and to run and to come to him. But in Adam instead hides from God. Listen, some of you are hiding from God. You're hiding from God because you've walked down this road. Check, check, check. You've you followed this path that Satan has, has had and you're feeling the effects of it and you're hiding from God by your good works. You're thinking, well, if I can do more good works, then, then it'll balance things out and God will accept me and it'll make things better if I could just pay him back with good works. Some of you think, well, if I could just be religious enough, then my religion will cover the gap and maybe that'll make things right. Some of you are hiding from God by just being busy and you're throwing yourself into your job and in your career to drown out the noise of all the chaos in your life some of you are hiding from God by your ambition, some of you are hiding from God by focusing on your own only on your outward external appearance when you're ignoring the very problem is on the inside some of you are hiding from God by your own anger because you're so angry with God and you're pushing him away and pushing him away my friends but at the end of the day when you lay your head on the pillow at night you feel the emptiness on the inside You're hiding from God, separation from God. Another effect is separation from each other. I mean, it doesn't take a moment when this thing happens, then all of a sudden this husband and wife are starting to blame each other. Man, well, it's this woman you gave me. Man, it's her fault. Well, it's this guy. He was so passive. He was right there the whole time. He didn't say anything blame shifting well it's these kids it's this problem it's that problem and 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 all of a sudden it's no longer about what i have done and my contribution to this problem and my sin before god it's always about how that other person has failed and hurt me and i'm telling you what marriage council 101 that's where it always is This person and that person and blaming others. This is only a a, uh, a sign of the separation that's happened because of sin. Some of you are blaming people. You're blaming your parents. You're blaming how you were raised. You're blaming your your spouse. You're blaming your kids. You're blaming God. But you're you're separated and you find yourself alone. And isolated. Listen, when you blame everybody, when you push everybody away, guess what? You end up by yourself. And that's a lonely place to be. And then, Separation from God, separation from each other, and, and eventually separation from their purpose. I mean, they were kicked out. Their purpose was to tend the garden. Their purpose was to glorify God in it, to rule and reign in his, as God assigned them. And now they're removed from that. And some of you are missing out your purpose. God's got you here for a reason, for a spiritual reason, to know him, to walk with him, to follow him, to be used by him in a great way. But you are spiritually out of the game because of all these things that have happened in your life and in your family. Now, if I were to end the message right there, this would be a very depressing talk. Amen? No, don't amen that. All right. But the story doesn't end there. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. All right verse 15. So God is dealing with all this separation. He's dealing with the man, dealing with the woman. He deals with the serpent and he makes a little side statement that's very, very important. Look at verse 15. He says, "I will put hostility between you, that is certain, but that is Satan, with you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel." This is the first Prophecy. Make, it, make a note of it. The first prophecy in the Bible of a foreshadowing Savior to come. This is the first one. He says, yes, there's going to be enmity. There's going to be strife between husband and wife. There's going to be strife between uh, people groups. There's going to be strife. Are we not experiencing any of that right now? Are we experiencing that right now? Yes, absolutely. He's going to, there's going to be a lot of strife, but there is one that is coming who is going to be a Savior And he's going to come, and when he comes, he is going to do battle on a spiritual playing field. And what is going to happen is you are going to deal him a a mortal blow. You're going to strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And that Savior has come, and that Savior is Jesus. That when Jesus came, he came to reveal the love of the Father. He came when we were steeped in sin and our downward decline, and he came and came to us to reveal the love of the Father and to go to a cross, and on the cross, all your sin, all your waywardness, all the times you looked for happiness outside of God's plan, all the time you doubted God's goodness, all the time you you bit that sin and, 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 and rebelled against God, all that was put on the back of innocent Jesus, and on the cross, he died. Payment for it all all of our wickedness all of our rebellion all of our waywardness was put on the back of jesus that he died and i believe that day hell celebrated they had killed the king of glory they put him in a tomb but folks three days later something changed amen come on come on now three days later something changed and Christ rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering and crushing Satan's head. Listen, Satan is, is a dog on a leash. Folks, you understand what that means? He's got his day coming. And and Christ, the king, is exalted over all. And now he says, if you'll come to me, I will will take the mess that you're in. I'll take the the pain that you've endured, the lies that Satan has led you down. I will take that and I will make it new. And I will bring healing and I'll bring restoration and I'll bring hope. I can restore you back to the way I designed your family to be. But you got to come to him. Aren't you glad for God's mercy and God's goodness and the hope that we have in Jesus? Listen, every family problem is at the core a spiritual problem. Every marriage crisis at the core a spiritual crisis. If that's true, then we need a spiritual answer. We need a spiritual Savior, and that is Jesus. I'll close with this thought. John Newton was a... uh, He was very cognizant of his own sin. John Newton, the the man who wrote Amazing Grace, that's really what he's known for. Slave trader, godless, reprobate for most of his life. And then he was confronted with the gospel. His life was radically changed. He actually became a pastor. People would travel for miles and miles to hear John Newton's testimony of God's grace and how he saved a wretch like me, as he mentioned in his own song. John Newton later would write many, many letters, pastoral letters to people that he loved. And in one of his pastoral letters, this is a statement that John Newton made. I want you to listen to it. He said, if our physician, listen to this in your context, with what you're wrestling with, with where you are spiritually, listen to what he said. If our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. If he casts none out that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Aren't you glad for that? There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. That our sins are many, but his mercies are more. And maybe today you need to step, take the step of acknowledging your sin and receiving God's mercy and God's restoration and God's hope. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a minute. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ and this is your moment, your opportunity to do that. Just with your heads bowed, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer of faith that, that just really prays, God, I know I've sinned against you. I know I've gone down this road. I know that only you can change me and save me, and I'm asking you to do that. And if right now you realize your only hope to this spiritual problem is a spiritual Savior who is Jesus Christ, who loves you, if you realize that your sins are many, but his mercy is more, then you can have it right now. What you prayed this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your amazing grace in my life. Lord, thank you for your love. Lord, I just confess that I've sinned against you. I've gone my own way. But I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose again from the dead, and I'm asking you now. Please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Lord, I hear you calling my name, just as you called Adam in the garden. And I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm going to run to you. Please forgive me. Father, I just pray for every marriage in this room that's under attack. The Lord, we'd see it as a spiritual battle the invisible enemy at work, Lord, that we would fight it on our knees and find it with your word in our hands, that we would trust you as our sword and shield. Lord, thank you for your mercy.